Well, we spent quite a bit of time, as many of you know, looking at verses 3 through 14. And as I mentioned before, this is the longest sentence in the Bible. In the original Greek, it is one continual sentence. And it's Paul uh, enumerating for us the many, many blessings that belong to us in Christ. And as we've gone through this, we've seen that he's been uh, zeroing in at different points on uh, the particular work of the three persons in the Holy Trinity, God the Father. He begins there with God the Father, who is really the architect of, of our salvation. He planned everything out, and he chose us in Christ before the world ever even was formed. And uh, he chose us to be holy and blameless before him, Paul tells us. And he predestined us to be adopted as his children. And he uh, accepts us and has poured uh, an abundance of his favor upon us in Christ. And then he moves on to speak about the particular work of Christ in redeeming us through his blood. Jesus came and he shed his blood for us to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. But he also tells us that we obtained an inheritance through Christ, through being uh, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. He is the heir of all things, and we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so now in verses uh, 13 and 14, as we come to the end of this section, Paul now brings us to the particular work of the Holy Spirit. So the Father chose us, The Son redeemed us, and we read here that the Spirit has sealed us. Verse 13, in whom also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. And so the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, Notice Paul refers to the Holy Spirit here as the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, Why does he do that? Well, he does that because the Holy Spirit was the special promise that God had given through the prophets, uh, the promise that would be connected to the coming of the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. So back back in the Old Testament, you might notice if you read through your Bible, you will find that that God would uh, occasionally pour his spirit upon individuals. He would raise them up and uh, they they would accomplish the things that he had for them. But these outpourings of the spirit were few and far between. They were very selective. So not everybody in that Old Testament period of time experienced uh, a, a real work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This was something, though, that God said would be the, the feature of this new covenant that he would establish. So the old covenant was marked by uh, a select few people knowing the power of the Spirit in an extraordinary way. The new covenant would be marked by all of God's people knowing the power of the Spirit in an extraordinary way. And so when Paul says that uh, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that's what he's referring to. It's, it's the promise 
that God had given through the prophets. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 is one of those promises that God gave concerning the Spirit. We read there, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit, says the Lord, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So this is the promise. God's going to pour out His Spirit. And it's going to be something that every believer is going to have an experience of. Sons and daughters, old men, young men, mid-servants, maid-servants. God says, there's coming a day when I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. And so that's the promise given by the prophets. There are many other examples that we could look to. But moving forward to the final prophet really of the Old Testament period, John the Baptist, John said something similar. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, we read John's words. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, of course, he was speaking of Jesus. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so once again, John reiterating the promise of the coming of the Spirit. And then Jesus himself, before he ascends back into heaven, after he's died on the cross and risen from the dead, Luke records for us in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he said, And being assembled together with them, he, speaking of Christ, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So this is what God had promised. He promised to send his Holy Spirit. He promised that through the Messiah and, and within the context of this new covenant, every person who believed would have a personal dynamic experience with the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus said more about this as well. He, he, in speaking to his disciples, as he was telling them that he was uh, going to leave, he was going to return to the Father, they were discouraged, as you could understand. And they were tempted to depression. And Jesus said to them, no, you know, don't be discouraged. You don't understand. He said, it's actually to your benefit that I go away. He said, if I don't go, the spirit will not come. But if I leave, then I will send him to you. And he spoke of the Holy Spirit coming as a comforter or a helper. And he actually would come as the replacement for Jesus. Jesus said, the Father's going to send you another comforter. And the word there, another, means another of the same kind. So really, the Holy Spirit is for us today what Jesus was to the disciples back when he walked the earth. Have you ever had that desire to have maybe lived back in the time of Christ? Have you ever had that uh, wish that you could have been there and you could have 
you know, heard the voice of Jesus and seen him and walked with him and seen those miracles. Oh, how great that would be, we think. And it would have been great. But Jesus said, there's something better. And the better thing is the coming of the Holy Spirit, because the thing with the Holy Spirit is that he can bring Jesus to each and every Christian simultaneously. Billions of people that have believed in Christ are able to experience God in the full sense, experience Christ in a full sense simultaneously, even though we're, we're you know, separated by uh, great distances and time and so forth, but we can all experience the same Christ through the person of the Spirit. And so this is part of the blessing that would come through this promise that God made. So he's the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us that we have been sealed with this Holy Spirit of promise. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, a seal signified two things. Number one, it signified ownership, and secondly, security. God has sealed us with his spirit, which means God has stamped us uh, with his image as uh, his possession. He owns us. We belong to the Lord. In that time, in in Paul's day, uh, a seal would be placed upon an object uh, that a person would uh, purchase or, you know, perhaps they were transporting it or something. And, and the seal indicated ownership, who's it belonged to. And so with us, this is what God is saying. When, when Paul says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, God has uh, put his stamp of ownership on us. We belong to him. You belong to the Lord. You're his. Now, remember Paul in writing to the Corinthians, he says, uh, since that is the case, you are not your own, you have been brought, bought with a price. He says, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to him. See, we belong to the Lord. He purchased us. He redeemed us. And he puts his stamp of ownership on us through the spirit. But there's also the addition of security. Because God owns us, he's put his uh, stamp of ownership on us. And that then secures us as his property. When something was uh, sealed by the Roman seal, it meant you don't touch this. You don't, you don't tamper with this. Maybe you remember in the gospels, Jesus, when he was put in his tomb, uh, Pilate gave a command for the tomb to be sealed because there were the rumors that Jesus was gonna rise from the dead and there was the, the suspicion and the fear on the part of the Jewish leaders that his disciples, you know, would would break into the tomb and steal his body and say that he had arisen. And they came to Pilate and they said, now, now this deceiver said when he was alive that he was going to rise again. And, you know, his disciples might steal the body. So Pilate, he, he sealed the tomb for them. So there was that Roman seal that meant this uh, place was under protection. It was secured. Don't touch it. If you touch it, it'll cost you your life. And so... We've been sealed by the Spirit. We belong to God, 
And that, uh, the fact that we are his possession also gives us security. You can't tamper with God's possession. We're under his divine protection. And so we have this ceiling. But then Paul says, thirdly, that the ceiling is the guarantee of our inheritance. So it's the presence of the Spirit, and specifically the sealing of the Spirit. This is what has guaranteed to us our inheritance. Now, the Greek word that's used here, translated guarantee, is the Greek word erebon. And this is an interesting word because it was originally a Hebrew word, but it came into Greek usage, they believe, through Phoenician traders. Uh, somehow the Greeks adopted the word. And... Um, the word is still with modern Greek speakers today. And interestingly, the word today, although it didn't necessarily mean that back in ancient times, but the word today means engagement ring. Engagement ring is the meaning of this word. So think of that for a moment, that the, uh, the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or who... who uh, we could say in modern Greek usage, who is the, uh, the, the engagement ring. What does an engagement ring signify? It signifies, you know, you, you belong to this person and it's just a matter of time before all of that is solidified through the, through the marriage. But this word in its ancient usage is even more uh, significant and, and stronger than that. Because, of course, an engagement can be broken off, right? You can give somebody a ring and ne never follow through with the marriage. But uh, the ancient use of the word is, uh, of course, the way we need to understand it. John Stott in his Ephesians commentary, he said, but in ancient commercial transactions, this word signified a first installment, deposit, down payment, pledge, that pays a part of the purchase price in advance and so secures a legal claim to the article in question or makes a contract valid. In this case, the guarantee is not something separate from what it guarantees, but actually the first portion of it. And then he says, an engagement ring uh, promises marriage but is not itself a part of the marriage. A deposit on a house or in a lease purchase agreement, however, is more than a guarantee of, of payment. It is itself the first installment of the purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. That's beautiful. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. The fact that God has sealed us with the Spirit guarantees that we are going to enter into the inheritance, and he's already uh, allowed us to enter into it partially. So we, we currently have a partial experience of what we will have a full experience of in the future. And as I read here from the ESV today, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or you could read it, I think it's what it's really you know, saying here, is until we acquire full possession of it. 
See, we already possess it. That's what Paul is saying. And the fact that we possess it now indicates that we will possess it in its fullest sense in the future. So this sealing of the Spirit, God's intention here, partially at least, is to let us know that we belong to him and that nothing can alter that. That he has saved us and he sealed us and he's going to bring us into everything that he's intended for us and nothing is going to stop that from happening. We've been sealed by the spirit. Over in the the fourth chapter, the 30th verse, Paul talks about the possibility of us as Christians grieving the spirit. And he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you have been sealed until the day of redemption. So you see, it's clear that the sealing is something that is going to take us through to a complete and a total uh, experience of our inheritance. And I emphasize that because there is the idea that some hold to that you can um, have salvation temporarily, but you can lose it somewhere in the process. Uh, Paul doesn't believe that. He doesn't teach that. He says that we're sealed the moment we believe. Now, that brings us to our second main point here. The truth of the sealing of the Holy Spirit is both positional truth and practical truth. And what do I mean by those two things? Well, positional truth refers to the things that are true uh, from God's perspective, whether we experience them ourselves personally or not. Uh, For example, going back um, in the first portion of Ephesians here, you remember we're told there um, that we have been seated in the heavenly places. We have, we have already been seated in the heavenly places. Now, we're not there yet though, right? But as far as God is concerned, we're there. So that's a positional truth. We're there positionally. Even though we haven't arrived there practically, we're there positionally. So it's as good as done from God's point of view. And so with the sealing, God seals us with his spirit and he seals us the moment we put our faith in Jesus whether we experience it or not. So it's not so much something that we're, we're depending on having had an experience in order to know whether or not it's true, but it's something we know is true because God declared it to be so. So this is like an objective truth. It's, it's an objective truth because it's a truth based upon something God has declared rather than a subjective truth necessarily, which is based upon something that I've experienced. So... The moment you believe in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You might not necessarily have an experience that, uh, you know, lets you know that that sealing has taken place, at least not right at that second, but it's happened nevertheless. But then, of course, there is also the practical truth here, because when a person's sealed with the Holy Spirit, this is the first uh, step, if you will, of, of many other things that follow along with that. So we're sealed with the Spirit of God. 
we're regenerated by the Spirit of God. That you know, probably happens simultaneously. We are filled with the Spirit or, or we're indwelt with the Spirit. Then we're filled with the Spirit. Then we have what we call a baptism of the Spirit, which some see as distinct from filling. Some see as uh, identical. But there are different experiences that we have with the Spirit. But you see, this is what makes a person a Christian, the Spirit of God. There are many people that would call themselves Christians who do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. They're they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us if, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But there are many people who would refer to themselves as Christians, but they're they, they know nothing of this experience of the Spirit. In actuality, they are what we would call nominal Christians. They're Christians in word only, or they're Christians in culture, or they're Christians because that's the background that they grew up with. That's the tradition that they have. And they're Christians because they're not Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or atheists. So, you know, you, you can go in the culture today and you can talk to people and you can find, hey, well, what are you? Well, I'm an atheist. You know, I don't believe in God at all. And then you might meet somebody who's a Buddhist or somebody who's a Hindu or a Muslim. And then a lot of people, you say, well, what are you? Well, uh, we're Christians. But, well, what does that mean? Well, that just means, you know, we go to church occasionally, maybe on Easter uh, once a year. Uh, but that, that's our tradition. But... That's not a Christian. That's not a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has the spirit of Christ in them. The spirit of God is there. I was talking to a man after service this morning. He's Bill. uh, I know Bill well. I think he's probably in his late 70s or early 80s. He said, I was a nominal Christian, as you described it this morning, till I was 59 years old. And he said, what happened is my mother passed away. And when she passed away, she left me her Bible. And he said, I set it on the desk and it sat there for a year. And I I thought, you know, I should probably pick this up and read it at some point. And so finally he decided to pick it up and read it. And he read in Revelation chapter three about being lukewarm, neither hot or cold. And he realized I'm, that's exactly what I am. And uh, he, at that point, point. He made a real commitment of his life to Christ, and he's been walking with the Lord and serving the Lord ever since then. But, you know, that's a good illustration of what I'm talking about. This is very, a very real possibility for so many people. They're nominal Christians. But the thing that distinguishes us as truly a Christian is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there is that subjective element, the presence of the Holy Spirit that manifests itself in what ways? Well, it manifests itself in the, because God's Spirit lives in us, the Spirit of Christ in us cries out, Abba, Father. So we have a sense that God is our Father. We speak to him um, with that kind of freedom and that kind of intimacy that the nominal Christian knows nothing about. The nominal Christian thinks, that's weird. You talk to God You can't do that. Well, the Spirit of God cries out in our heart, Abba, Father. But then there's also uh, the bearing witness of our, with uh, our spirit, or God's spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's just that sense that we, we now know that we're God's children. And we 
act like we're his children. We, we think like we're his children. We depend on him and we call upon him. And again, these are things that uh, nominal Christians don't do at all. And they quite often have a problem with people who do those things. I remember years ago, I, I was on a train traveling to Northern England and I was sitting there across from a lady and I was looking for, you know, an opportunity to maybe talk to her about the Lord. So we struck up a conversation and, and as we were talking, um, you know, she told me that she was a Christian. Of course, she was English and she was, uh, grew up in a Christian nation. And as we began to talk a little bit, she looked at me and she said, she said, uh, you're not one of those born agains, are you? I said, well, actually, you know, I am. And she, she didn't like those born-agains. That was her point. And, I, and, and, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, disarm her a little bit by being nice and, not, you know, not fitting the stereotypical born-again that she had in her mind. Uh, but I, you know, I said to her graciously and as nicely as I could, I said, well, you know, look, you know, re- the reality is the Bible says you must be born again unless you're born again. And that's, that's what we're talking about here, the regeneration of the spirit. So this is what we're describing here. This is the practical side of this truth. It's the subjective side of it. We have the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So you see, my point is this. This is the thing that makes, this is the distinction between a genuine Christian, a real Christian, and a person who is merely a nominal Christian It's the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And of course, because the Spirit of God is present in your life, He is the Holy Spirit, your life's going to change. And we read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then we read about the empowering of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, where Jesus said, the spirit will come upon you and he will give you power to be witnesses to me. So you see, it's both a positional truth and it's a practical truth. But whether or not we've had the experiential part of it, initially, the moment we believe in Jesus, we're sealed by the spirit of God. We, we become his and he puts his mark upon us. And he says, this is my property. Don't touch it. Keep your hands off of it. It belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. We belong to him. He sealed us with his spirit. Now, the sealing of the spirit, thirdly, is the guarantee of heaven. That's what Paul is saying here. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, there's a There's a difference of opinion among Christians when it comes, as I said, to this idea of uh, whether or not one can lose their salvation. Some people believe that you can as a Christian, that your salvation uh, can possibly be lost. Others would disagree with that. I happen to be in the latter group that disagrees with that. And I disagree with it because you can't get around what these scriptures are saying. So we're sealed. 
And the seal is the guarantee that we're going to get there. If we weren't, if there was no sealing, then there would be no guarantee. But since we're sealed and the seal is the guarantee, we can have that confidence that we're going to get there. Now, somebody asked me uh, this morning about, you know, how do you reconcile this with certain passages? Or in, in most cases, people say, well, how do you reconcile this with this uh, example that I'm going to tell you about right here? And much of the time, this is what people do. They say, look, I know somebody can lose their salvation because I know somebody who I know was saved for sure, and they lost their salvation. And my response to that is, we do not look to find truth in our limited understanding of people's experiences. We look to find truth in the pages of the Bible. We have to find the truth in the scripture. And the scripture, although there are a, a very small number of passages that would seem to imply that losing your salvation might be possible, I believe that every one of those passages can be uh, interpreted in another way without doing any injustice to the text whatsoever. But there are numerous passages that state unequivocally that your salvation is absolutely uh, secure. There's no other possibility uh, when it comes to interpretation, you can't interpret them any, way, any other way. And of course, it can't be both. You can't have, well, you can lose your salvation, but no, you can't lose your salvation. Some people say, well, you know, the Bible has paradoxical uh, truths, you know, truths that seem to be uh, contradicting each other. In some places, there, there might be a little truth to that, but this is not one of them because it can't be both. You can't, yes, not lose your salvation, but oh, yes, on the other hand, you can lose it. So as we go to the scripture and, and as we look at what the scripture says, to me, there's no way around these statements. And not just the, the 13th and the 14th verse here, but as we even go backwards in the text, as we considered a while back, again, think with me about some of these things. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Now, remember, this is what God has chosen us to, meaning he's going to get us there. If you were not going to be holy and blameless before him, it's this simple. You would not have been chosen. The ones that are chosen get to where God chooses them to be. We get to that place of being holy and blameless before him. Remember, we're accepted in the beloved. You can't improve on your salvation. You're in Christ. You can't get out of Christ. You're in Christ. Now, sometimes people say, oh, but you know, when you talk about people not losing their salvation, you're just telling people go out and do whatever they want and don't worry about it. They're going to get to heaven in the end. No, I'm not saying that at all. Because if a person thinks that not losing your salvation means go live like the devil and get to heaven in the end, that person's deceived. That's not, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there's, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, like I said earlier. So there's going to be a growth and a development, a sanctification that's taking place. But we need to know, we need to have that security. You know, if I get up in the morning and I'm not sure if I'm saved, how well do you think I'm gonna do serving God throughout the day? If I can't figure out whether or not I'm saved, how am I gonna help anybody else to get saved? So you see, we've got to have that security. God wants us to have that security. 
And so he gives us right here in his word, these clear statements. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. You know, when you, you see the word guarantee, what does it say to you? It says, yeah, it's, it's gonna happen. It's, this, is, this is what, this is what the, the terms of the agreement are and this is the guarantee in it. And so as we read in God's word that we've been sealed by the Spirit, as we have those subjective experiences of being um, filled with the Spirit, and as God's Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we're His children and so forth, all of these things are to us the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. We have it now, but we will get it in its fullness in the future when we go to be with the Lord or when the Lord comes back to receive us to himself. And so for me, it's, it's these verses along with many others that convinced me many years ago of the doctrine of the security of the believer. And so I make no apologies for holding to this view. I believe it's the, it's the correct biblical view. John 10, I've quoted John 10 many times before. Jesus said, I know my Sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand, and I and my Father are one. Um, There's no way around that. Thank God. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad that Jesus... Aren't you you glad that it's the job of Jesus to keep you till eternity? Man, if it was our own job, oh, how, how, how pathetic that would be. But God keeps us. He sealed us with his spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. So in conclusion, how does the sealing of the Holy Spirit come about? How can one be sure they have an inheritance in heaven? Look with me once again at verse 13. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. It's all through belief. It's all through that simple avenue that God has established of faith. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the simple prescription for salvation. And that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. He says, you heard the gospel, you heard the good news of your salvation, you believed it, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But now listen, as you know, and as we said before, we have to clarify what belief is. It's not just simply an intellectual assent to something. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, well, yeah, sure. I guess I believe Jesus lived. I guess he was a historical figure. Maybe he was the son of God too. That's not biblical belief. Biblical belief uh, implies a receiving of Christ into our lives as the Lord. We're receiving him as the Lord, the authority. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, Jesus, you're now Lord. I'm giving him my life. That's the idea behind the biblical picture of belief. Just in 
the best way you know how. You just, Lord, I, here I am. I'm believing in you. And as that takes place, that, that moment in the heart, the, the spirit of God is placed as God's seal upon you. You become his. And so today, if you haven't, if you don't know that you've been sealed with the Spirit, if you haven't had the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're God's child, maybe like Bill that I talked about earlier, maybe, you, maybe you've been in, uh, in church most of your life, or all of your life for that matter. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian. You know, something I've noticed, though, a lot of times when, when people are nominal Christians, they usually refer to themselves by their denomination. Say, are you a Christian? No, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> are you a Christian? No, I'm an I'm a Episcopalian. Are you a Christian? No, I'm a Catholic. Well... Of course, you can be a Baptist and be an Episcopalian and be a Catholic and be a Christian, but you can also be all those things and not be a Christian. So make sure you're a Christian. Make sure you've received Christ. Make sure you've believed in him and don't rest in that denominational connection, but only rest in the vital, real connection to the true and the living God. Lord, we thank you that you have sealed us with your spirit. And Lord, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take full possession of it. But thank you, Lord, that we have these uh, foretaste of it today that you've given us, Lord, that down payment. And so we experience impart what we will experience in full in the future. And Lord, may we, even as we go our way this week, may we have just a greater sense of the presence of your spirit with us, confirming to us that we are the sons and the daughters of God. And Lord, I would pray also for anyone with us today that's not yours, the seal of God, the spirit of God is not upon them because they haven't yet believed. Lord, help them today to believe. And as they believe, confirm to them, Lord, your presence, your spirit sealing their lives. And while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, we're praying today. If you Do not have the assurance that you belong to the Lord and that you have that inheritance in heaven. And maybe you've been trusting in something other than Christ alone. While our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, then just slip your hand up and we're going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. God bless you. And the Lord's going to meet you right where you're at and he's going to confirm to you that you belong to him. He's going to seal you with his spirit. Anyone else, just slip your hand up. So Lord, we thank you for those that are showing by the raising of their hand, their desire. And so now Lord, seal them with your spirit 
as they believe in Jesus. Seal them. And Lord, may they also know the the experience of your spirit bearing witness with their spirit that they are indeed your child, that the spirit of Christ would cry out in them, Abba, Father, that your love would be shed abroad in their hearts today by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen.